Tonight's talk is about emptiness. I'll first talk about emptiness of the self, and then I'll talk about emptiness of phenomena in general. When contemplating emptiness, I find it helpful to keep two Buddhist teachings in mind, impermanence and conditionality. If I can keep them both in mind, emptiness seems easier to wrap my arms around. So as we go forward, try to, try to do that. Just keep impermanence and conditionality, dependent origination, this, that conditionality in mind. With regard to impermanence, the Buddha taught that all sankharas are fleeting, all concoctions are impermanent. And as we've discussed, a sankara is that which has been put together, fabricated, or concocted. Sankaras include all formations, the sense organs, their objects, thoughts, memories, emotions, words, actions. They're all impermanent. So that's impermanence. With regard to conditionality, we're taught that everything is dependent on other things. Nothing stands alone. From the ultimate perspective, there are just streams of dependently arising phenomena intersecting. Nothing has inherent existence. Nothing is a noun. With this as a necessary condition, that arises. If this necessary condition doesn't happen, that doesn't arise. If I get my coffee in the morning, I'm more alert. And if I don't, I'm not. The stream of this groggy body and mind in the morning intersects with the stream of a cup of coffee. This groggy body and mind in the morning includes other things in its stream, like whether the body exercised the day before, whether the mind meditated, whether the body slept the night before, all of these contribute to the stream of how groggy it feels on this particular morning. And then another part of the stream will be how it feels after drinking the cup of coffee and the things that the mind and body will do after that. It's all part of the stream. And so is the coffee. The stream of the cup of coffee includes other things in its stream, such as the sunshine and water it took to grow the coffee beans and the grinder that grinded them, as well as the spent grounds after the coffee has been made and the compost it will become. So that's impermanence and conditionality. So keeping those both in mind, let's explore emptiness. It isn't taught that much in the Theravadan tradition. Even though two suttas in the middle-length discourses specifically address emptiness in their titles. One is the long discourse on emptiness, and the other is the shorter discourse on emptiness. Both acknowledge the realization of emptiness, but they don't really explain what it is. In another sutta, in the collected discourses, the Buddha made the rather radical statement that the world, as we experience it, is nothing more than sense contact and vedana. The world is nothing more than sense contact and vedana. 
In other words, it is only through our sense contact and our Vedna that we experience the world. We think we're experiencing the world directly, but we interpret it through our Vedana in response to sense contact, which is quickly followed by our interpretive thoughts and emotions. The Buddha then made another radical statement, which was that the world, our sense contact and Vedana, is empty. Empty of what? Empty of an unconditioned, permanent sense of self. Since sense contact includes internal sense organs, like the ear and the eyes, as well as external sense objects, like sights and sounds, This means that the self as well as external phenomena as we know and interpret them are all empty. This is the teaching on emptiness in the sutta. So let's start with emptiness of the sense of self, this entity we take ourselves to be. Of course, the self isn't an entity, it's a verb a process. But we usually don't see ourselves as empty, do we? Rather, we see ourselves as the exact opposite of empty, permanent and unconditioned. We deny impermanence by denying the certainty of death. And we deny conditionality by reifying the sense of self as inherently existing, as standing alone, as a noun. There are at least six ways we identify as a permanent, unconditioned self. Sometimes we think the self is the body. Sometimes the owner of the body. Sometimes we think the self is our thoughts and emotions. Sometimes we think it's the owner of our thoughts and emotions. And sometimes we think the self is the observer or consciousness, the one who sees, who hears, who thinks. And sometimes we think the self is all five. the body, the owner of the body, the thoughts and emotions, the owner of the thoughts and emotions, and the observer. But there are flawed assumptions identifying the self in these ways, at least three that I'll talk about. First, the flawed assumption of continuity. We mistakenly think the self is unchanging over time and continuous. But when we take an honest look, we know that isn't true. Our bodies are changing constantly. Our white blood cells live on average of about a year. And the red ones live for about four months. Skin cells two to three weeks. Colon cells die after about four days. Sperm cells have a lifespan of only three days. Not much continuity is going on with the cells of the body. The body was once sick, then it gets well. It was once young, then it got older. It was once handsome or pretty, And then, well, not so much. Our bodies are constantly changing, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. But change is the constant, not continuity. And our thoughts 
may change even more frequently. Experts estimate that the mind thinks between 50,000 and 80,000 thoughts per day, which is an average of two to 3,000 an hour. I'm sure you've seen this on retreat. That's a lot of discontinuity. But because we cherish this sense of self, we find it frightening to consider the truth of its ultimate non-continuity, death. Instead, we desperately try to hold on to the fiction of continuity. The second false assumption that maintains the fiction of a permanent and unconditioned self is independence or reification. Reification means to consider something that is really ephemeral, like a bubble, as concrete. So we reify this sense of self. We mistakenly think that we are independent and somehow above our experience. In other words, we think we're the observer. This may be why it's difficult to see dependent origination. We resist shifting our perspective from one of reification to one of conditionality. From one of seeing things as nouns, including ourselves, to seeing things as verbs, including ourselves. We resist it. In a book entitled Emptiness by Guy Armstrong, Guy says that when we see ourselves as independent somehow from our experience, we create an auxiliary entity that doesn't really exist. And we have to keep creating this reified sense of I over and over to sustain the illusion of its reality. And this requires constant effort that prevents the heart and mind from ever fully relaxing. Perhaps you've experienced the absence of an independent self. Uh, Perhaps you've experienced uh, this verb process um, without resorting to a reified self. This happens for us sometimes um, in a flow state when just the unfolding of experience is taking place without a sense of self. Like, for instance, maybe if you're a jogger on a long run or if you're engaged in other kinds of sports, maybe you've experienced it that way. Sometimes it happens in nature when just this unfolding is occurring. Unfolding of experience without this sense of a reified self. Perhaps it happens when you listen to music or creating art. When the self is out of the way, And just the unfolding occurs. The flow goes on without us. And the end result may actually be better. So that's continuity and reification. There's a third way that we maintain this fiction which is through an idea that we have control. In addition to continuity and reifying the self, um, we mistakenly believe that our sense of self has control over this body and this mind. But if that were really true, the self wouldn't allow this body to get sick. And the self wouldn't allow this mind to think certain thoughts 
or to have certain emotions or to get or for this mind to get distracted the buddha made this point of the self's lack of control or ungovernability with regard to the five aggregates which we take ourselves to be the body and the mind which is what the five aggregates represent this is the second teaching he gave after his awakening it's called the discourse on not self and it was given to the same five ascetics that he gave the first sermon to this is what he said bhikkhus form is not self this is the first aggregate and as you'll remember it it's the five internal organs and the five external objects of those organs we take we take the internal organs to be who we are in the form of the body he says bhikkhus form is not self in other words body is not self for if bhikkhus form were self this form would not lead to affliction it would not be possible to have it a form let my form be thus there it would be possible to have it a form let my form be thus let my form not be thus in other words we'd have more say in how our body was but because form is not self he says form leads to affliction and it is not possible to have it a form let my form be thus let my form not be thus and he said the remaining uh, four aggregates likewise were not self because they too are ungovernable vedana perceptions mental activities and sense consciousness so body and mind are also not self owing to their ungovernability and then he doubled down he said the aggregates are not fit to be regarded as a self or what belongs to a self not just because of their ungovernability but also because of their impermanence and resulting dukkha so it's not just because the mind and body won't do what we say but because they lead they're impermanent and they, that leads to dukkha he concluded the sutta by saying that after one has had an insight into the not self nature of the aggregates one would experience disenchantment with them and dispassion towards them and realize nibbana indeed while hearing this sermon on not self kandanya and the other four ascetics all became fully awakened there's a later teaching recorded in the middle length discourses in it the buddha made the same point about the aggregates lacking governability in a debate with sachika a well-known debater at the time of the buddha and also sachika was a self-described saint who lived in vasali but before meeting the buddha sachika egoistically exclaimed to an assembly gathered in vasali that he sachika saw no teacher even one claiming to be fully enlightened who would not shake and shiver and tremble and sweat under the armpits if the teacher were to engage with a in a debate with sachika and afterwards saying that to the assembly sachika asked one of the bhikkhus in attendance what the buddha taught and the bhikkhu replied that the buddha taught that the five aggregates of body and mind taken to be the self are impermanent and not self and sachika then asked where he could meet this buddha and have a debate with him and detach the buddha from that erroneous view and sachika is then quoted as saying 
just as a strong man might seize a long-haired ram by the hair and drag him to and drag him fro and drag him all about, so in debate I will drag the recluse, Gotama, to and fro and drag him around about. If he repeats to me what this bhikkhu just said, that the aggregates comprising this self are not are impermanent and not self. So later that day, Satchika found the Buddha sitting at the root of a tree, approached him, and asked the Buddha what he taught. And the Buddha began by saying that he taught that the aggregates of body and mind are impermanent and not self. And in response, Satchika argued that the aggregates were self. And then the Buddha asked Satchika, What do you think, Satchika, when you say thus, material form is myself? In other words, the body is myself. Do you exercise any power or control over that form so as to say, let my form be thus, let my form not be thus? Satchika had to reply, no, Master Gotama, I don't. The Buddha says, pay attention, Satchika, pay attention how you reply. What you said afterwards does not agree with what you said before when you said the aggregates were self. Nor does what you said before agree with what you said afterwards when you answered the aggregates are not self. What do you think, Satchika, when you say thus, Vedna is myself? Do you exercise any control or power over that Vedna? So as to say, let my Vedna be thus, let my Vedna not be thus. Satchika had to reply, no, Master Gotama, I don't. And the the debate continued similarly regarding Satchika's admission that he lacked power and control over the remaining mental aggregates of perception, mental formations, and consciousness. After further debate, Satchika also admitted, at least intellectually, he understood that the aggregates were impermanent and dukkha. At the end of the debate, my favorite part, the Buddha said to Satchika, it is as though a man needing heartwood, perhaps to chop for firewood, needing heartwood, seeking heartwood, wandering in search of heartwood, were to take a sharp axe and enter the woods, and there he would see a large but hollow plantain tree trunk. And even though it's straight and young, it had no fruit bud core. And then he would cut it down at the root, cut off the crown, unroll the leaf sheaths, looking for heartwood. But as he went on unrolling the sheaths, He would never come even to any sapwood, let alone heartwood. So too, Satchika, when you are pressed and questioned and cross-examined by me about your own assertion that the aggregates are the self, you turn out to be empty, vacant, mistaken. But it was you who made this statement before the Vasali assembly. I see no teacher, even one claiming to be fully enlightened, who would not shake, shiver, and tremble, and sweat under the armpits if he were to engage in a debate with me. Now there are drops of sweat on your forehead, Sachika, and they have soaked through your upper robe and fallen to the ground. But there is no sweat on me. Afterwards, Sachika continued to maintain his sense of self, that the aggregates were self, and he did not take refuge in the triple gem of the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, as listeners often did at the time of the Buddha after hearing him. Satya couldn't give up his self-reification. Even though logically he had to admit the self he was identifying with lacked any power or control over his experience of the world, through his five aggregates of body and mind. So if there's no continuity and no reification and no governability in the ways we identify as a self, is there a self? 
In a short discourse in the Samyutta Nikaya, the wanderer Vachagota asked the Buddha this question. In other words, he asked the Buddha, Buddha whether there is a self. And in response, the Buddha was silent. Vachagota asked a second question. Then, Master Gotama, is there no self? And a second time, the Buddha was silent. And soon afterwards, Vachagota got up and left. And after he had left, and uh, Buddha, the Buddha remained behind with his attendant Ananda, Ananda asked the Buddha why he was silent in response to Vachagota's question. And the Buddha responded, If, Ananda, when I was asked by the wanderer Vachagota, is there a self, I had answered there is a self, this would have been siding with those ascetics and Brahmins who are eternalists and believe the self is permanent and everlasting. And if, when I was asked by him, is there no self, I had answered there is no self, this would have been siding with those ascetics and Brahmins who are annihilationists, who believe there is nothing there and take no responsibility for their actions. If, Ananda, when I was asked by the wanderer Vachagoda, is there a self, I had answered there is a self, would this have been consistent on my part with the arising of the knowledge that all phenomena are not self? No, venerable sir. And if, when asked, is there no self, I had answered, there is no self, the wanderer Vachagoda, already confused, would have fallen even into greater confusing, confusion. So eventually, Vachagoda did become fully enlightened, but it took a long while. In another sutta, the Buddha teaches that we should not take a stand on whether there is a self or not. In this sutta, which I referred to last night in the talk on dependent origination, another uh, a monk by the title Venerable Kachyanagota asked the Buddha, in what way is there right view? And by the way, the fact that the Venerable Kachyanagota is referred to in the sutta as the Venerable is a signal that this is going to be a deep teaching. So Kachyanagota, the Venerable Kachyanagota, asked the Buddha, what is right view? And in response to the question, in what way is there right view, the Buddha answered this. And he calls Kachyanagota Kachyana. He says, the world Kachyana, for the most part, depends on a duality, upon the notion of existence and the notion of non-existence. And so with regard to existence, it's what it means is that the self exists eternally. And with the notion of non-existence, it's meaning the self does not exist at all. So the Buddha is setting up the whole argument about whether there's a self in terms of this duality. For the most part, uh, this question depends upon a duality and the potion on the notion of existence or the notion of non-existence. But for one who sees the origin of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, the origin of the world with correct wisdom as it really is, that is through conditionality, through dependent arising, there is no notion of non-existence in regard to the world. And for one who sees cessation of the world as it really is with correct wisdom. Conditionality, now in the cessation order, there is no notion of, exist of existence in regard to the world. So there's no notion of uh, 
of it either way, existence or non-existence, when you see clearly dependent origination and this, that conditionality. And then the Buddha goes on. In this world, Kachyana, is for the most part shackled by engagement, clinging, and adherence. But one with right view does not become engaged or cling or adhere to these notions. He does not take a stand about my atta, my soul, myself. He has no perplexity or doubt that what arises is only dukkha arising. In other words, he has no doubt that what is arising is not a source of lasting happiness. And he has no doubt that what ceases is only dukkha ceasing. In other words, he has no doubt that what ceases is not a source of lasting happiness. His knowledge about this is independent of others. In other words, he's had an insight for himself. In this way, Katyana is right view. All exists is one extreme. All does not exist is the second extreme. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Buddha said, when a tathagata, which he re- is how he referred to himself, a tathagata teaches the Dhamma by the middle, which is conditionality. That everything is in process. It's all verbs. And then the sutta goes on to cite the links of dependent origination in the ascending and in the descending order. So the Buddha never said there is or isn't a self. He just said that everywhere you look, you can't find a permanent one that's unconditioned. Not in the sense bases, not in the aggregates. Of course, from the conventional perspective, one has a sense of self. But with insight into its impermanent and conditioned nature, one's willing to hold the sense of self a little bit more lightly. From the conventional perspective, one with this insight still owns a car and is responsible for the car loan, has a friend and wants to be thoughtful in that relationship and has metta and compassion and mudita and equanimity for oneself and others. It's not that there isn't a self. It's just that there isn't a permanent, unconditioned one. And from the ultimate perspective, it's just all an interplay of impermanent and dependently arising and ceasing phenomenon. Conditionality is the answer to what is right view. Nagarjuna, who lived in South India in the second century, is considered the founder of the middle path schools of Mahayana Buddhism. His best-known text is the Mula Maja Makakarika, which is Sanskrit for verses of the middle way. It's been studied by Buddhists in all Buddhist traditions and was transcribed by Stephen Batchelor in a book called Verses from the Center. Throughout the treatise, Nagarjuna points to his understanding of emptiness. And in the 18th chapter, this is what Nagarjuna said about the emptiness of self. Where mind and matter, me, in other words, mind and body, were mind and matter me, I would come and go like them. If I were something else, they would say nothing about me. What is mine when there is no me? Were self-centeredness eased, I would not think of me and mine. There would be no one there to think them. 
What is inside is me. What is outside is mine. When these thoughts end, compulsion stops, repetition ceases, freedom dawns. Papancha spawns thoughts that provoke compulsive acts. Emptiness stops papancha. Buddhists speak of self and they also teach not self and also say there's nothing which is either self or not. When things dissolve, there's nothing left to say. The unborn and unceasing are already free. Buddha said it is real and it is unreal and it is both real and unreal and it is neither one nor the other. It is all at ease, unfixatable by thinking, incommunicatable, inconceivable, indivisible. You are not the same as or different from the conditions on which you depend. You are neither severed from nor forever fused with them. This is the deathless teaching of Buddhas who cared for the world. When Buddhas don't appear and their followers are gone, the wisdom of awakening bursts forth by itself. So this might be worth reading one more time with a little annotation. Were a mind and body me, I would come and go like them. But because I have no governability over them, I don't come and go like them. They go their own way. If I were something else, mind and body would say nothing about me. So I'm not my mind and body but they also do say something about me. What is mine when there is no me? Were self-centeredness eased, and perhaps that's the best posture, an easing of self-centeredness, I would not think of me and mine. There would be no one there to think them. What is inside is me, what is outside is mine. When these thoughts end, compulsion stops. Repetition ceases, freedom dawns. Fixations, papancha, spawn thoughts. That avalanche of thoughts that was about to get me, that was a bunch of papancha. Papancha spawns thoughts that provoke compulsive acts. Emptiness stops papancha. Buddhas speak of self and also teach not self and also say there's nothing which is neither self nor not. Well, the teachings on metta are about the self, but that's on the conventional level. The teachings on emptiness, the aggregates and sense bases, are teachings on not self. When things dissolve, in other words, when we stop seeing nouns, When things dissolve, there's nothing left to say. The unborn and the unceasing are already free. If we're not making nouns, nothing's being born and nothing is dying. It is all at ease, unfixatable by thinking. No matter how much we try to reckon enlightenment with our papancha, it's useless. It's all at ease, unfixatable by thinking, incommunicatable, we can't describe it, inconceivable, it's beyond concepts, indivisible. And then perhaps the most brilliant thing, You are not the same as or different from the conditions on which you depend. I'm not that morning cup of coffee I drank, but I'm also not different from it either. You are neither severed from nor forever fused with them. 
we're all just soda pies interacting, streams of dependently arising phenomena. The conditions on which I depend are intersecting at the place I call me. This is the deathless teaching of Buddhists who care for the world. It's deathless because no nouns get born to die. Okay, so that's emptiness of self. Emptiness of phenomena. If the self is empty, what about phenomena? In what way do they exist? Are they permanent and unconditioned, or are they also empty? In a sutta called the Lump of Foam, the Buddha taught how ephemeral and ungraspable the five aggregates are, the five aggregates of mind and body. And I alluded to this last night. In the sutta, he begins by comparing the form aggregate of the five organs and objects to a lump of foam. A lot of phenomena are included in, in the form aggregate. Internal organs that we take to be ourselves, including the body, as well as external parts, such as other people, places, animals, nature, events, institutions. And he compares it all to a lump of foam. In the sutta, the Buddha likened this form aggregate to foam as follows. He says, bhikkhus, suppose that this river Ganges was carrying along a great lump of foam. A man with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, carefully investigate it, and it would appear to him to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a lump of foam? So too, bhikkhus, whatever kind of form there is, whether past memories, future anticipation, or in the present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a bhikkhu inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it, and it would appear to him to be void, hollow, and insubstantial, For what substance could there be in form that is impermanent and conditioned? In a footnote to Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation of this sutta, he says that this is one of the most radical discourses on the empty nature of conditioned phenomenon. And then he gives a warning. He says the similes in this sutta should be understood with care. They're not intended to suggest an illusionist view of the world, or I would add, they're not intended to suggest a fatalistic view of the world. Rather, as Bhikkhu Bodhi says, the similes are intended to show that our conceptions of the world are largely distorted by the process of cognition, These false conceptions of ours, he says, arise from a base that objectively exists, namely the five aggregates, but when seen through a mind subject to conceptual distortion, the aggregates appear in a way that deviate from their actual nature. Instead of being seen as transient and selfless, They appear as substantial and as a self, he says. So this is how we should understand the similes in this sutta. They're pointing to the empty nature of all phenomena from an ultimate perspective. The Buddha goes on to talk in the sutta in the same way about the four mind aggregates of Vedana, perception, mind, uh, mental activity, and consciousness. These are the aggregates that deal with the mind sense organ and its objects and thoughts, uh, of, of thoughts and emotions and memories and intentions and moods. It compares Vedna, the first of the mental aggregates in the list, 
as a water bubble. Suppose, bhikkhus, that in the autumn, when it is raining and big raindrops are falling, a water bubble arises and bursts on the surface of the water. A man with good eyesight would inspect it and ponder it and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to him to be void, hollow, and insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a water bubble? So too, bhikkhus, whatever kind of vedna there is. And now we're talking about the initial categorization of sensory input into pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. He says, whatever kind of vedna there is, whether past or future or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates vedna. And it would appear to him to be void and hollow and insubstantial, like a bubble. For what substance could there be in Vedna, which is impermanent and conditioned? And then he goes on to make the similar comparisons. Uh, He compares perception, uh, labeling to a mirage. Uh, In the last month of the hot season, mental activity to the hollowness of a hollow plantain tree trunk and consciousness to a magician's display of a magical illusion. In other words, the Buddha taught that all five aggregates of body and mind, including the sense objects, the the constituent parts of all phenomena, are ephemeral and insubstantial, not self, empty of inherent existence. He cut yet another facet in not-self by including as empty anything we take as belonging to the self. So in another sutta, he said, form is not yours. Vedna is not yours. Perception's not yours. Mental activity is not yours. Consciousness is not yours. In other words, the not-self cannot possess the not-self. And then he said, abandon these internal and external aggregates as yours. When you have abandoned them, that will lead to your welfare and happiness. It's worth repeating here an excerpt of what Nagarjuna said so eloquently. What is inside me? What is outside mine? When these thoughts end, freedom dawns. Ayakema, who was Lee Brasington's teacher, was a mother and a grandmother before she became a nun. She spoke about her empty insight into emptiness of self and what belongs to a self in her autobiography, I Give You Myself. In it, she spoke of the freedom she experienced in seeing there was no internal mother self worth identifying with and no external children's selves worth clinging to. This is what she said. For the first time, I could regard my children as people I loved, but who were not an inseparable part of me. This in no way signified cutting off my love for them. Quite the contrary. I became capable of loving them without fear, right from the heart, without that love being conditioned on any requirement or demand. My love for them did not depend on their being alive or their living the way I wanted them to or from their side on their feeling connected to me or their being grateful to me or on their being well-behaved. Indeed, once we really see their ephemeral nature, why would we even try to grasp ungraspable aggregates, internal or external, as me or mine, 
This brings home the Buddha's first sermon in which he cut to the chase about what dukkha is. He said, in short, clinging to these five unclingable aggregates is dukkha. And as he instructs in the Sutta Napada, whatever one clings to in the world, by this clinging itself, Mara pursues a person. Mara, the harbinger of dukkha, the tempter of dukkha. By this clinging itself, Mara pursues a person. Therefore, Understanding this, the Buddha says, a mindful person should not cling to anything in the entire world. And of course, as I said the other night, in the Majjhima Nikaya, the Buddha says nothing is worth clinging to because everything lacks a clingable core. So what keeps us from seeing this coreless nature of phenomena We chop things up into nouns and label them. Which veils the ultimate impermanent and conditioned nature of phenomena. Through concepts, we confer entityhood onto onto verbs. Concepts are thoughts conceived in the mind that label and define what it perceives. We call a tree a tree, not because it's a tree, but because a human-made label is useful when speaking conventionally about trees. But over time, we've forgotten that labels are just useful conventions that don't fully account for the full picture of what the ultimate impermanent condition nature is of what they identify. A tree is an intersection of many things that came before and many things that have yet to come. But our labels tend to confer entityhood on phenomenon without taking into account everything that's going on. And once we start labeling phenomena, it's only a short step away before we somehow think we possess phenomena, can gain mastery over it, or we shrink in fear of it. This is the perception aggregate at work. Or if you will, the conceptualization aggregate. It's trying to make sense of the multitude of phenomena in our environment by singling out this form from that, naming what it perceives, and sometimes calling it ours. Perception is an important conventional tool that we need, no doubt. But without mindfulness... Labeling can result in chopping the world up into fixed concepts of I and other and mine and narrow-mindedly conferring entityhood on all of it. I remember when I first retired and moved to Washington, D.C. to the mountains of North Carolina a couple years ago, it was the beginning of springtime. I had left the concrete buildings of downtown Washington and all of a sudden found myself surrounded by lush greenery, rolling hills, and colorful flowers. And while sitting on my front porch one morning, I started noticing the birds. There were all different kinds of birds, little ones, big ones, brown ones, black ones, red ones, orange-bellied ones. And their sounds, oh my gosh, instead of the sounds of car horns and ambulance sirens and garbage trucks, there was a beautiful, melodious symphony going on right outside my cabin door. I decided right there that what I needed was something that would teach me the names of the birds by their sight and sound. So I traveled to the nearest bookstore asking whatever they had that would help me differentiate the local birds and their sounds from one another. And oh, they knew just exactly what I needed. They didn't have it in stock, but they ordered it for me, and it came with a CD identifying the birds and their calls. I was so excited just to even discover such a book existed. Um, So they ordered it. it. They didn't have it in stock, and they said they'd call me when it came in. 
sometime between ordering that book and the CD and going back to pick it up a couple weeks later, my desire for naming the birds and their sounds lessened. I began to wonder whether I really wanted to differentiate what I was seeing and hearing. Could I just be with the lovely experience without needing to have some kind of diluted sense of mastery over it? I did go back to the bookstore and I bought the book, but I have yet to open it or listen to the CD. I imagine one day I will. But I imagine, too, that it'll be from a place different from wanting a sense of delusional ownership over my environment through conceptualization. So conventionally speaking, can we be with our perceptions, our labeling, our concepts a little more lightly without being attached to the notion of the solidity of what we're perceiving and labeling? I have a neighbor where I live in the mountains. She likes birds, too. And in fact, she has a fondness for a certain bird that she says comes to visit her on a certain tree on her land every spring. In a sense, she has come to view both the bird and the tree as hers. And she expects this bird's return every year. Do we do this with people, too? Do we demand that our family and friends remain constant? While in fact, what's constant is their changing nature? And do we really have any ownership rights in connection with them? Maybe we can develop a sense of humor about the way we get attached to our concepts as a way of lightening up about it. In Nagarjuna's Malamaja Makakarika, he talks about the two truths of the world, conventional and ultimate. He describes emptiness as a realization of the ultimate perspective, but acknowledges the need to rely on conventions to disclose it. He said, the Dharma taught by the Buddhas hinges on two truths, partial truths of the world and truths which are sublime, the ultimate and the conventional. Without knowing how they differ, you can't know the deep. Without relying on conventions, you cannot disclose the sublime. And without intuiting the sublime, you can't experience freedom. When emptiness is possible, everything is possible. Where emptiness impossible, nothing would be possible. In other words, if things had inherent existence, they couldn't change. The fact that we're all empty means we can transform. And then he goes on to say, dependent arising is emptiness, which dependently configured is the middle way. Everything is contingent. Everything is empty. This is the heart of Nagarjuna's teaching, equating dependent origination with emptiness and saying that even emptiness is a concept, which is also empty. But it's a useful concept that points to reality. So in conclusion... I'll share an inspired utterance of the Buddha in response to a question that was posed to him by Mogaraja. It's in the Sutta Nipata. Mogaraja asks, how does one look upon the world so that the king of death does not see one? And the Buddha replied, look upon the world as empty. Mogaraja, being ever, ever mindful, having uprooted the view of self, one may thus cross over death. The king of death does not see one who looks upon the world thus.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.